The strange but true story featured on this podcast contains details some people may find distressing. Listener discretion is advised. I'm Chaya Samuel and things are about to get weird. Hello one and all, welcome to another instalment of Things Are About To Get Weird. If this happens to be the very first time you're listening, this is a podcast dedicated to all things strange but true. You can expect everything from bizarre true crime tales and deep dives into unsolved mysteries to stories about the paranormal, supernatural and otherworldly. You may stumble across an episode about a particularly wild scam artist or someone with an exceptionally odd life story too. There's a little something for everyone on this podcast and I'm thrilled to bits that you're here. Now, today's episode topic is something I have personally known about for quite some time. It's a story that really affected me when I first heard it and it's stuck with me ever since. One of our wonderful OG listeners, Natalie, mentioned it on our Facebook discussion page a few weeks back and I couldn't believe I'd never thought to cover it here. And so today's episode is going to be all about the group of women who came to be known as the Radium Girls. A major warning before we begin that this story is heavy. There will be a few gruesome details, which as you know, I do my best to not linger on, but it's also just incredibly frustrating. All of that said, I believe this tale is one that should never be forgotten. It's a dark and terrible slice of history, but the victims deserve to be remembered. So without further delay, let's get into the story. In the midst of the First World War, around 1916, a factory opened up in the city of Orange, located in the US state of New Jersey. On the surface, this doesn't appear at all unusual, especially given it was a time of war, as extra facilities were often needed to produce items required by the armed forces. But the New Jersey factory in question was something a little special, all thanks to the exciting new product being handcrafted inside. Glow-in-the-dark clocks and watches were a fascinating concept, both visually and practically. To soldiers in the trenches, they were invaluable, as it meant they were able to still tell the time in their dark dugouts. And the demand for this brilliant new invention was overwhelming. To help produce enough items to send to the front lines, hundreds of young women eager to help in the war effort flocked to the factory to work. Their task would be to paint the numbers and other details onto the clock and watch faces and other items like equipment gauges with the substance that helped them to glow in dark conditions. And by all accounts, the pay they received for this was very good. But despite the fact that many of the women loved their work at first and felt both empowered and fulfilled by their new positions, the job that they considered to be a dream was doomed to end in horror. Because despite its dazzling appearance and magical effect, the paint the young women were in contact with for hours each day was hiding a deadly secret. One of its key ingredients was about to change the factory workers' lives forever, and in many cases, in the worst ways imaginable, and that ingredient was radium. 
Now, to our ears in the 21st century, radium sounds dangerous just in the word itself. It's highly radioactive and conjures up images of that bright green highlighter glow that makes your brain think, that surely can't be safe. But in the early 1900s, it was used in a shocking number of everyday items. From the clock and watch faces I mentioned, to things like certain toothpaste and cosmetics. It was even used in a small quantity in a drink called Radithor, which was marketed as a tonic which could help cure all kinds of ailments. Essentially, according to radiation expert Timothy Jorgensen, people believed that because radioactivity released energy, that it meant this energy was safe to add to the human body to help relieve things like fatigue, for example. This assumption of safety couldn't have been further from the truth, but when you consider how radium was discovered, it's perhaps more understandable why this conclusion may have been reached. Allow me to take you back a little further to the year 1898, to the laboratory of Marie and Pierre Curie. For any chemist listening, please do forgive my layman's explanation of this next part. But during the course of several experiments Marie carried out on a mineral called uraninite, she became convinced that she'd discovered a new chemical element. Working with her husband Pierre, she tirelessly attempted to isolate this unknown element, and would often end up very sick in the process. Finally, in 1902, Marie was successful, and the formal discovery of the element they called radium was complete. It was then used in some early cancer treatment attempts, and was considered to work, which then gave it this legitimacy to be used to try and treat other health issues. But, of course, as Marie's bouts of sickness hinted towards, this was all before radium's true, deadly properties were understood. Which leads us back to not only this first factory that popped up in Orange, but the others that followed too. The New Jersey factory was operated by the United States Radium Corporation, who were clearly eager to capitalise on the discovery that radium-infused paint had this glow-in-the-dark effect. But whilst the young women turning up to work at the factory were incredibly enthusiastic and ready to get started, they obviously had sensible heads on their shoulders, as the question of safety was something many of them raised immediately. Kate Moore, the author of the book The Radium Girls, summed up the company's response and reason for it perfectly in an interview with CNN, saying, The first thing they asked was whether the paint was harmful, but the managers said it was safe which was the obvious answer for a manager of a company whose very existence depended on radium paint. The thing is, the women had good reason for raising their concerns. During the process of working with large quantities of radium in their experiments, both Marie and Pierre Curie had experienced some unwelcome side effects. Marie suffered some serious burns from improperly handling it, and Pierre was convinced that if he spent too much time in the radium lab, it would end up leaving him blind. 
So if you're thinking, well, why on earth did it become an ingredient in a literal tonic that people were drinking, or the toothpaste they were using, that in itself is strangely fascinating. In simple terms, what radium did when it was consumed in these smaller amounts was give the illusion of improved health as it stimulated the body's red blood cells. Many people who would drink products like the Radithor tonic would feel amazing in the short term, but had no idea that they were gradually poisoning themselves with this incredibly radioactive substance. And because the element hadn't been discovered for long enough for studies to conclusively find that it was, in fact, dangerous even in small quantities, it seems to me that companies were prepared to turn a blind eye to the potential issues with radium and kind of hope for the best. At least when it came to the female employees. The male workers, who were dealing with larger amounts of radium at a time, were given lead aprons to wear to protect themselves from the radiation, but the women were given no form of protection whatsoever, and as we'll see, the consequences of this would prove to be dire. Now, as work got well underway at the United States Radium Corporation factory in New Jersey, everything seemed rosy at first. The women were enjoying the glamour and prestige of their jobs, relishing the fact they were described as artists in local publications, and the bragging rights of saying they worked with what was then the world's most expensive substance. In today's money, a gram of radium would have cost way over $2 million, which is mind-boggling. But unbeknownst to the women, one of the techniques they were using day in and day out whilst painting the clocks, watches and gauges was not only unsafe, but in some cases would prove to be fatal. Think about how tiny the numbers on a watch face are. Painting them by hand with any kind of paint would be a delicate task, which is one of the reasons so many women were employed to do this job, by virtue of their smaller hands. But taking care with their brush strokes wasn't always enough on its own, and the women found they needed the brushes themselves to be as precise as humanly possible. And so, in order to make the very tips of their brushes as sharp as necessary, the women would lick them in the same way you might quickly lick your finger to help turn the page of a magazine, and use their lips to make the brush tip as thin as they could. I know, to our modern ears, it sounds bizarre, but as far as these ladies had been told by their bosses, it was perfectly safe. The technique was known as lip pointing, and the mantra lip, dip and paint was something they worked by. And that's not all. The dust from the radium had this beautiful glow to it, and the women viewed it in much the same way as we might think of glitter today. This dust was in the air around them all day, and the women loved how it made their clothes and hair look. There are even accounts of many wearing their favourite dresses to the factory to give them this magical iridescent appearance which would, of course, show up even more brilliantly when they went out to the speakeasy bars at night. But whilst these first few years were full of fun and charm for the factory employees, by the time the early 1920s came around, things were starting to take an alarming turn. In 1921, one of the young employees at the New Jersey factory 
Amelia Maggia, known to her friends and family as Molly, started to feel very unwell. She was incredibly fatigued and had begun experiencing the most horrendous toothache. If you've ever had bad tooth pain, you'll know it is truly the very worst. But I guarantee no dental issues most humans have ever encountered is close to what poor Molly had to endure. A warning that the next minute or so is going to involve some gory details, so do skip ahead if you'd prefer. After initially having a couple of teeth out, both she and her dentist noticed that the wounds at the extraction site weren't healing. With every extra tooth Molly had removed due to the pain she was in with them, excruciating ulcers would start to form, filled full of blood and pus. I'm so sorry, but that's not even the worst part. Her dentist then noticed an abscess had formed on her lower jaw and was growing larger and larger. It was decided that surgery was necessary to remove it, and when Molly went under the knife, a gruesome discovery was made. The bone in her jaw had been ravaged by the radium. It had been so severely eroded that when the dental surgeon touched the bone with his fingers, a section of it just crumbled. And just months afterwards, the rest of Molly's lower jaw had to be removed and it's the kind of visual that doesn't bear thinking about. There are photos online of other people who suffered this same fate, which came to be known as radium jaw. But look them up at your own risk as they are distressing to say the least. Tragically, on the 12th of September 1922, which was around a year after Molly started to feel ill, she passed away in terrible pain. Sources tend to differ on her exact age. Some say she was 22, some say she was 24 or 25 when she died, but we know that she was far too young possibly because she was the first factory worker to die from these terrible side effects of radium exposure. The cause of her mysterious death was initially recorded as syphilis, which became somewhat of a theme and reeks of misogyny, but I digress. Before long, it became clear that Molly would be far from the only young woman who would meet such an appalling end to her life. In the same year that Molly passed away, a new facility opened up hundreds of miles away in the city of Ottawa, Illinois. It was founded by the Radium Dial Company, and much like the factory in New Jersey, it specialised in painting glow-in-the-dark clock faces. The First World War was over by this point, and the products they were painting were intended for consumers rather than soldiers. But one thing hadn't changed and that was the lip-pointing technique used by the female workers to ensure the tips of their paintbrushes were as sharp as necessary. Now, although in New Jersey, the women who had been exposed to the radium paint for a few years were continuing to become unwell, with this being the 1920s, word about their deteriorating health simply hadn't travelled far enough. Once more, young, ambitious women grabbed the opportunity to work as clock face painters with both hands, including Mary Ellen Cruz, who was known as Ella. She began working at the Illinois factory in 1923, but devastatingly, she had no idea that the next four years of her life would be her last. 
it's often tricky to find specific details about the symptoms of radium poisoning suffered by each individual dial painter, but we know that the most common ailments included the catastrophic damage to the bones and teeth in the jaw we saw in Molly's case, cancerous tumours which would develop so rapidly that the women's limbs sometimes had to be amputated, terrible degeneration of the spine where the bone would effectively disintegrate, and ultimately, the untimely death of a significant number of those afflicted, including the then 24-year-old Ella, who passed away on the 4th of September 1927. And in the story of the group who would come to be known as the Radium Girls, this year is very significant indeed. Although it was sadly too late for poor Ella in Illinois, back in New Jersey, a campaign led by a brave employee named Grace Fryer was starting to gain momentum. Two years earlier, in 1925, a test was developed by pathologist Harrison Martland which changed everything. The test was able to prove that a person had died from the effects of radium, but his findings didn't end there. He also determined that there was no possible treatment nor a cure for this poisoning, and that it was, in effect, a death sentence. And this is because this isotope of radium, known as radium-226, has a half-life of 1600 years, which means once a person has ingested it, it's there for life, and in all probability would gradually kill them. When this research first came out, there were numerous attempts by all sorts of people to discredit it. Disappointingly, but not at all surprisingly, most of them had some connection to the radium industry. Don't forget, there was a lot of money tied up in the business of this incredibly expensive substance. And if history has taught us anything, it's that profit often comes before people. In the face of every suggestion or study in the early 1920s which indicated radium was dangerous, the United States Radium Corporation would dig up and present some evidence to the contrary, insisting that it was safe. And because of this, the dangers were never properly communicated to the workers and the lip, dip and paint technique carried on. However, Convinced that radium was the cause of her own illnesses and after hearing about the Martland test, Grace Fryer spent two years finding a lawyer who would take on the case and fight for compensation for herself and the other female factory workers in New Jersey, including two of Molly Maggia's sisters. Some previous attempts had been made by other radium girls to sue their employers, but because of issues with lack of scientific proof prior to this test, and also ridiculous statute of limitation restrictions, they were never successful. But then we get to 1927, when Grace met attorney Raymond Berry, who agreed to help the women bring their case forward. Now remember, by this point, many of them were extremely unwell, yet they were prepared to head into the legal ring and fight with an entire industry. The strength and determination the ladies had is something else. 
and when their lawsuit was filed, there was no more hiding to be done. It made headlines around the world, and obviously no one was more interested in the ladies' experiences in New Jersey than those working in the radium painting studios in Illinois and beyond. Encouraged by the outrage of the public and the sympathetic coverage the lawsuit gained in the press, a group of the Illinois radium girls, most notably a woman named Catherine Wolfe Donahue, began their own legal fight against their employer, the Radium Dial Company. Now, I am not exaggerating when I tell you I have spent hours reading about these legal cases, and I don't know whether it's because of how long ago the proceedings took place or because it was all US-based, but to me, it all feels very involved and complicated. I'm going to give you the heavily abridged versions of what became of these cases, but if you're intrigued, I would definitely recommend diving deeper into the articles I'll mention at the end of this episode for even more detail. But here it is in a nutshell. In the New Jersey case, the five radium girls who brought it forward ended up reaching a settlement where each would receive $10,600 for each year that they continued to live. Now, this was a far cry from the $250,000 each they had initially asked for, but the tragic truth of the matter was that they were all dying and time was running out. Despite the massive evidence that had been put forward, including the exhumation of Molly's remains, which confirmed it was radium and not syphilis which had killed her, there were also factors which negatively impacted their legal battle. Not least the fact that one of the key mediators in the case, Judge William Clark, was a United States Radium Corporation stockholder. You honestly could not make it up. And when it comes to the Illinois women's case against the Radium Dial Company, this was also finally won. But it wasn't until 1939 that the company had exhausted all of their many appeals and were forced to pay the victims their compensation. But the financial aid for the women aside, one of the most important outcomes of all of the litigation was that the radium industry was finally forced to admit their wrongdoing. The author, Kate Moore, who I mentioned earlier, estimates that the number of women who suffered the consequences of their exposure to an ingestion of radium was likely into the thousands. Though many of these radium girls never saw any monetary compensation, the legacy they left was enormous. Not only was this one of the very first cases in which a company was held accountable for the well-being and health of its employees, a significant number of safety measures were also introduced for those working with any amount of radium. Over the next few decades, the use of radium paint slowly began to dwindle, and it's not been used on clock or watch dials since around 1968. Unsurprisingly, it now has very few uses as it's simply too hazardous, which is obviously a good thing. And of course, the question at the end of all of this is, what became of the radium girls? It's a question that's really difficult to pose because in many cases, we sadly already know the answer. 
Grace Fryer passed away on the 27th of October 1933 at the age of just 34 and Catherine Wolfe Donoghue died on the 27th of July 1938, which was a year before the Illinois case against the Radium Dial Company was finally concluded. I'm sure you can understand why I described this case as frustrating in the introduction. So many people failed these women, and even when the opportunities came for them to do the right thing, it was so often far too little, far too late. But if there is one bit of good news I can give you, it's that some of the Radium Girls did survive until later in life, albeit with some serious health issues. One of the very last Radium Girls, a lady named May Keane, passed away in 2014 at the incredible age of 107. As a teenager, she had spent a few months working in a dial painting factory in Connecticut during the summer of 1924, but ultimately concluded that the job wasn't right for her. This decision almost certainly saved her life, although she did still suffer ill effects from this short stint at the factory. Before the age of 40, she had lost all of her teeth, and she battled both breast and colon cancer during her life but considering some of her colleagues never made it to their 30s, I'm sure May felt grateful that her exposure to the radium-infused paint had not ended her own life prematurely. May's case is one of a handful of positive anomalies in this otherwise tragic and truly bizarre tale. I'm sure we could all agree that whilst this story is strange but true in its very nature, the most shocking yet unsurprising part of it all is how badly the Radium Girls were treated once they started to become sick. In my opinion, it would have been obvious to absolutely anyone that a clear pattern was emerging and that something in the workplace was making the women ill. I simply don't buy that those in charge didn't immediately come to the conclusion that it must have been the Radium. How they lived with themselves, I have no idea, but I suppose we can take some comfort in knowing that conditions did change after that final lawsuit was settled. I wanted to leave you with some information that made me really quite emotional when I read about it, and is a testament to how amazing the Radium Girls truly were. During the Cold War period in the 1950s, many of the surviving women agreed to take part in clinical studies by scientists hoping to understand more about how radium affects the human body. Some of the examinations they underwent were very intrusive and must have been so uncomfortable for them, especially given all they had already been through. But these studies were vital in helping to develop the proper protocols for keeping humans safe from radium in the future. When people ask me why I'm so fascinated by history and strange historical stories in particular, I think going forward, I'll use the Radium Girls as my example to try and explain why remembering the past is so important. If the women hadn't fought back so hard via their court appearances, where many were too weak to even raise their hand to swear their oath before testifying, or volunteered for the studies in the 50s, we may not have understood the true dangers of radium for many more years. Their bravery undoubtedly saved hundreds if not thousands of lives, and they deserve to be remembered as heroes despite not asking for any of what happened to them. 
And with the most recent film about their story being released in 2020, it's clear that their legacy still lives on to this day. Oh my goodness, I know that was a heavy one, but I really do hope that you found this story interesting. As I mentioned, there are so many more details available to read about. It really is an incredibly complex and layered tale. But in the spirit of trying to keep the episode on a concise and structured path, I didn't quite get to everything. A big, big thank you again to Natalie for reminding me to cover this topic. I really appreciate it. I'll be giving you a quick rundown of the sources I used, which helped in my research for today's story in a moment, so do feel free to go and do some further reading. But first, it's that time once again. Here's our outro feature, Weird Media. So this Weird Media recommendation is a bit strange, in the sense that I'm taking a bit of a risk in saying how great it really is. And that's because I haven't actually finished it yet. In fact, as I'm recording this, not all of the episodes have even been released. But you know when you stumble across a new TV show and you are hooked in after the first five minutes? That is exactly what happened to me this past week. And the TV show in question is called Silo. It's on Apple TV and my husband actually binged the first few episodes before stopping and telling me I had to catch up because I would love it too. So I did and then once we were at the same point, we started to watch it together. And I think we're up to episode six or seven at the moment. Based on what I've seen so far, it's pretty much the perfect show to feature in weird media because it is bizarre. Without giving too much away, the basic premise is that there's this huge community of people, I'm talking over 10,000, who have spent their whole lives living underground in this 100 plus story structure known as the silo. They believe that if they were to go outside, they would be poisoned by the atmosphere. And all they know is that 140 years previously, there had been an incident which forced their ancestors underground and they've been there ever since. All they see of the outside world is a video feed from a sensor outside the silo entrance, which is broadcast on these enormous screens throughout the building. But we soon realise that all may not be as it seems. I'm not going to say a word more about the plot, but I can tell you that the premise is fascinating, the set design is amazing, and the cast is packed full of some of the best actors of our time. You never know who's going to pop up next, it's brilliant. Once I've finished the series, I'll be sure to put a message on our Instagram page to let you know whether this recommendation still stands, but I feel incredibly confident that it will. I have very high hopes. It's spelt silo as in S-I-L-O, and I believe new episodes come out every Friday, so it's well worth checking out if you're looking for a new show to get your teeth into. Okay, I'll try to be as speedy as possible with the shout-outs for my sources, so here we go. There was a CNN article from December 2017 entitled Radium Girls, The Dark Times of Luminous Watches, which was fantastic. A great New York Times piece by William Yardley from March 2014. An article from Britannica by Don Vaughan, which was super helpful. A radium fact file from Live Science by Rachel Ross, published in 2014. 
an all that's interesting.com piece from April of this year by Richard Stockton, the Marie Curie website, which had some great information about her discovery of radium. The website, theradiumgirls.com, which is a brilliant source for learning more about each of the women. Environmentalhistory.org, which had a very useful piece about the radium girls. And finally, the American Council on Science and Health's website, acsh.org, which has lots of details about the legal side of the story. As always, please do get in touch and tell me your thoughts on today's episode topic. On Instagram, our handle is at thingsgetweirdpodcast, and on Twitter, it's at abouttogetweird. Facebook is one of the best places to chat to myself and our wonderful community, both through the main podcast page and also the private discussion group too. Just search Things Are About To Get Weird on Facebook and you can request to join the private group. If you fancy sending me your own strange but true stories or experiences, you can also pop me an email too. The address is thingsgetweirdpodcast at gmail.com. A huge thank you for joining me today and for all of the wonderful reviews and ratings you've been leaving for me. Every new star rating on Spotify means the world and it genuinely makes my whole week when I read a new written review that's been left on Apple Podcasts. You're all so kind and so supportive and I don't take it for granted for one second. I already can't wait to be back with our next episode. So until next time, take care of yourself and others and keep it weird, but the good kind of weird. Mm-hmm.